Take your Bibles out and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I want to bring a message this morning entitled, God's Downward Mobility. God's Downward Mobility. Philippians chapter 2, and uh, we'll focus in on verses 5 through 11. I do want us to back up to verse 1 so that we can understand the context and, and the setting of what scholars refer to as the Christ hymn that begins in verse 5. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we thank you for this very special season of the year where we see that so many great truths, so many great doctrines of the Scripture converge together. What a great season of hope. I pray, Lord, that we would not get lost in the sights and sounds and celebrations of Christmas and miss the greatest gift of all, the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that you came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. The just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As Paul says in Romans 3, he's the one who was that propitiation for our sins. That sacrifice that was in our stead. Died in our place in all the wrath of God against sin. Was directed at him and he bore our guilt. That through faith in him we might become the adopted children of God and cry out, Abba. Father, that we might have peace with you and be reconciled to you. Lord, we celebrate that this season. And I pray that as many walk in darkness and don't have understanding, that you would loosen our lips and tongues that we might proclaim the mercies of our God. 
that they too might come to know Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to open up your word, to read it, to hear it taught and preached. And I pray as the psalmist prayed that even the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On December the 11th, 1936, King Edward VIII abdicated his throne because of his undying love for Miss Wallace Simpson. You see, Miss Simpson was a divorced lady from America. And as the King of England, Edward VIII was not only the king, but he was also the head of the church. And the church expressly forbade the marriage of the head of the church to anyone involving any type of marriage after divorce. And so King Edward VIII had a very difficult decision before him, but really for him it was not a difficult decision at all. And so on December the 11th, 1936, after only serving 325 days as the King of England, he voluntarily stepped down from his throne. Folks, in the text before us, we read of how the Lord Jesus Christ, because of His great love for you and me, abdicated His heavenly throne, if only for a time. He came to dwell with man and to die for man. He gave up heaven's throne for Calvary's tree. As C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Miracles, in the Christmas story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being and the time and space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. Now there are people who will go through this Christmas season and they will not really understand what it's all about. Some will treat this Christmas season as merely a secular event with the message being goodwill toward men. And to express their goodwill toward men, they will give costly and valuable gifts to one another. Others will view it as a religious holiday, but they're not really sure what is all behind it. They don't understand the particulars. And that's why I want us to cover this text here right before Christmas. This text is regarded as one of the greatest texts in all the Word of God that explains for us the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see why He came to the earth. We're told here about His incarnation. He came in the flesh to identify with us, but ultimately to die for us. But in dying for us, we see that His death was not the end. 
You see, on the third day, he was raised to life again. He ascended back to the Father. The Bible says there he is at the right hand of God. And one of these days, he's coming again for his bride. So we see not only his death here, but also the fact that he lives and he reigns and he rules. First thing I want you to see with me today is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. Pick up reading with me again in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or what he's saying is the mind of Christ, the mind that was in Christ. That now you likewise have because you're in Christ if you know him. He says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now as Paul begins this passage here, one of the best known passages in all of the New Testament, I want you to understand the context of verses 5 through 11. The context, of course, is verses 1 through 4. What Paul has just said to the Corinthian congregation there about their love and encouragement of one another, their ministry to one another, and their unity there in the body of Christ. You see, the little epistle of Philippians is one of the greatest, Philipp, uh, greatest epistles or writings in the Bible that talks to us about the joy of the Lord. Joy is a key phrase in the book of Philippians. And Paul is so overjoyed by this congregation who has been the most faithful congregation in loving him and supporting his ministry. But as Paul writes this little book, already there is beginning to be some trouble in the congregation. There are little pockets of division. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 2, he is going to appeal to two ladies in the congregation that they would learn to get along with one another and live in harmony. And so he's saying to the church here in chapter 2 that you need to love one another and, and live in harmony and you need to understand that by doing that, you're going to actually humble yourself, not exalt yourself, but you need to humble yourself and consider one another's needs as more important than your own. You need to defer to one another. Now, folks, in this world today that we live in where everybody is more concerned about their own upward mobility, deferring to one another is quite a challenge. But what he points out here is that the greatest example of all in deferring to one another and serving one another would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not selfishly hang on to what was already rightfully his. John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I want you to think about the journey that the Lord Jesus took from heaven to earth. Some of you are already planning your Christmas journey at the end of this week or next week. Maybe you've already secured your plane tickets. Or if you're traveling by automobile, you're already thinking about how to get everything packed and in the car safely. And you're thinking about that journey that you're going to take. 
Well, folks, I want you to think about the journey that the Lord Jesus took out of the ivory palaces of, of heaven where he was worshipped and adored to a dark and depraved world like we live in. A world where a psychotic, demon-possessed, 20-year-old young man can walk into a classroom, two classrooms of six-year-old kids, and mow them down and murder them with a weapon. That's the kind of world that Jesus Christ was born into. And think about what he left in order to come among us, Emmanuel, God with us, that he could be our Savior. Like the psalm writer said, uh, out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe, only his great eternal love made our Savior go. Do you understand that after the birth of the Lord Jesus... After the genealogy of the Lord Jesus that is given in the Gospels, there are no other recorded births or genealogies in the Word of God? Why? Because the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus Christ. There's this beautiful scarlet thread of redemption, the redemption story, God's love to man, God intervening to save man that, that climaxes in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's no recorded verse or genealogies after his. An anonymous author gave us a glorious description of the Lord Jesus when he wrote more than 2,000 years ago, there was a man born contrary to the laws of nature. This man lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. Only once did he cross the boundary of the country in which he lived and that was during his exile in childhood. In infancy, he startled the king. In childhood, he puzzled the doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature, walked upon the billows as if on pavement, and hushed the sea to sleep. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the world could not hold all the books that have been written about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he's furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters combined. He never founded a college, but all the schools put together cannot boast of having as many students. Though time has spread many years between the people of this generation and the scene of the crucifixion, yet he still lives. Herod could not destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. He stands forth as the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed by God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, and feared by devils as the living personal Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our God. Verse 6 says, who though he was in the form of God. The word for form there is the word, uh, from, we get our word morphe from that. It doesn't mean a physical shape. It means the essential nature of something. 
It says that in, in eternity, Jesus Christ existed in the form of God. He had the essential nature of God. Hebrews 1 says he's the exact representation of his nature. In John 1, the Bible says, In the beginning the, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What John is saying there is in the beginning when, when creation began, the Word was already there. There's never been a time that He was created. He's always been from eternity past. And the Word was with God. In, in the modern lingo of the day, He was eyeball to eyeball, face to face, nose to nose with God. What's being communicated there is equal footing, equal status. How can that be? Because he goes on to say the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word tabernacled among us. He became flesh and tabernacled among us. Listen to some voices, uh, some, some verses of Scripture, uh, New Testament voices. Christ's voice included, speaking about His deity, even in the incarnation. John 5, 18 says, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill Him, because He had not only broken the Sabbath, but also said that God was His Father, making Himself equal with God. John 10, 38 says, But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. John 14, 9, Jesus saith unto them, Have I been so long with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me has seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? I think of the kindergarten teacher who asked everybody in the, her class, every student, to, to draw a picture of somebody very important and very significant to them. And all the little boys and girls began drawing with their pencils and crayons. She said, okay, you got to turn in your pages now. One little boy at the back was still feverishly drawing. And she walked back there and said, Johnny, you've got to turn in your page. He said, teacher, I'm not finished yet. She said, who are you drawing? And he said, I'm drawing God. And she said, Johnny, nobody knows what God looks like. He said, they will when I get done. <laughs> Reading on in verse 6, it says, he did, not, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. The word for equality with God is the Greek word isos. We get, we get the thought of the, the isosceles triangle, a triangle with two equal sides from this. So when it says that Jesus Christ was equal with God, it means that in all ways He was God. He did not cease to be God when He was born into this world. When you think about the birth of the Lord Jesus, you've got to keep in mind that there was no subtraction. Deity was not taken away from Jesus Christ. He did not cease to be God. There was no subtraction when Jesus was born. There was never a time that Jesus was not God. There was never a time when Jesus Christ 
was man and not God. But there was a time when Jesus Christ was God and not man. Likewise, there was no division. He was not part God and part man. He was fully man and yet he was fully God. He was the God man. And so when Jesus was born, he was equal with God. No subtraction. He didn't cease to be God. No division. He wasn't part God and and part man. But there was addition when Jesus was born. He who was God now took upon himself human nature, flesh. Now you have deity in human form. You have God manifesting himself as a man. What does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ in all ways possessed the attributes of God. In John 1 he said to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, I saw you while you were yet sitting under the fig tree. He said to the paralytic, take up your mat and walk and your sins are forgiven. He assumed the prerogative, the the ability to, to be able to forgive sins. He said to the wind and the waves, peace be still. And they calmed down. He said to the legion of demons, leave the man, and and they left the man. He said to the lepers, go and show yourselves to the priest. And the Bible says that as they turned away and left, they were made clean. So we see here in Philippians 2, the incarnation, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became flesh without ceasing to be God. Why? Because the Bible says in the book of Hebrews it was necessary that a high priest be able to identify with those whom he represents. He had to be made like us. Like us. Only as one like us could he understand everything that we go through and only like us could he go to the cross and die in our stead for our sin. The incarnation. But Paul expresses here not only the incarnation, but the humiliation of the Lord Jesus. Pick up reading with me again in verse 6. He says, uh, in verse 6 and 7. He says, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. As verse 6 goes on to say here, though Jesus was God and equal with God, he did not consider this as something to be grasped. In other words, he had every right to hang on to it. Grasping for it would have not been robbery with him. He could have used his deity for his own advantage, but he did not. But though he didn't have to grasp it since equality was already his, yet he laid aside his heavenly glory to come down here. In a moment of time, he went from the robes of royal glory in heaven to the swaddling clothes uh, of a babe in a manger. 
in a moment, he left from the heavenly praise and, and the magnificence and glory of all that heaven is, and he came down to a livestock stable that had all the, the smells of urine and animal dung waste. In a moment, he left heaven and came to earth. What a journey. Folks, the Bible says that he made himself nothing. He made himself of no reputation. Literally, he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? Did he empty himself of his deity? Did he empty himself of his divine attributes? No, certainly not. He didn't empty himself of either of those, his deity or his divine attributes. Because had he done that in some sense, he would have ceased to have been God, fully God. And so we know that he didn't do that. In fact, in Colossians 2.9, the Bible says... In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. And so what does it mean when it says he emptied himself? It means he laid aside some of his prerogatives, some of his advantages of deity. He laid aside that heavenly glory for a time. And that's what he's alluding to in his prayer, the high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 5. In John 17, Jesus knows that his earthly ministry is almost over and, and what lies ahead is Calvary's cross. And he's going to be crucified and buried and yet he knows that he's going to be raised and ascend back to the Father. And so what does he pray in John 17, 5? He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We see glimpses of his heavenly glory in the Gospels. For example, three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration. The other disciples didn't get to go up there and, and, and see that. All of his deity was there, but it was, it was veiled in, in human flesh. In fact, Paul goes on to say here that he even became a servant and not just a servant, but the word here is a bondservant. A bondservant is the lowest slave of all in a household. Not just your everyday run-of-the-mill servant, but the lowliest of the low. And the Bible says here that Jesus became a bondservant. He knows what it's like to be despised and rejected of men. He knows what it's like to be insulted and, and mocked and, and, and spit upon. He knows what it's like to be tempted and yet without sin. He knows what it's like to stand at the grave of a loved one and, and grieve. He emptied himself of that glory in heaven that was his, worshipped by the angels, and he, he came to his own, and the Bible says that his own received him not. He knows what it's like to walk in your shoes and my shoes. He's been here. 
Folks, it's hard sometimes to get in to see important people. In fact, you can call them and it's almost impossible to schedule a visit to get into somebody's office if there's some high dignitary or important official. But when Jesus came, blind people had access to him. The deaf had access to him. The, the lame had access to him. And he touched them. He touched the blind and he opened their eyes that they could see. He healed the paralytic that they could walk again. The good news of Christmas for you and me is that you and I have access to God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's an old fable that illustrates this and it's just a fable, obviously. It's about a man named Walter. Walter worked for the largest corporation in the world. And this corporation was housed in this gigantic skyscraper and many other buildings that went along with that skyscraper and there was Walter in the lowly mail room. He would sort through the mail and put it in this slot and that slot. And he would put it in his little buggies and he would go all through the floors of that massive structure along with the other people in the mail room and he would deliver all the mail to the, to the different offices. And one day in the mail room, he noticed a little mouse over in the corner. And he went over there to squash that mouse. And that mouse cowered down and said, don't kill me. My name is Milton. And I can give you any wish that you desire. Just try me. And so Walter said, okay, Milton, I want to get out of the mail room. I want an important job here. I want a boss's job, a manager's job. And so all of a sudden, boom, it was done. And he was over an entire floor and department. One day he said to Milton, that's still not enough. I want more power. And, and so Milton gave him even more power. Milton went on to give him fabulous cars and boats and homes and, and vacations. And, and Walter was living large. He was loving life, but he still wasn't satisfied. And so one day he said, Milton, I want it all. I want to be the president and CEO of this business, the world's largest corporation. Boom! In an instant, it was done. And there in his penthouse office one day, he heard some steps up on the roof. And he thought, who in the world could that be? It sounded like some running and, and jumping around and commotion going on. He heard somebody talking. And, and so he left that penthouse office and he went up on the roof. And up on the roof was a little child playing. And he said, son, what are you doing? I, I, I'm, I'm playing. Who are you talking to? Oh, I'm praying. I'm praying. Oh, who are you praying to? Are you praying to Walter? If you're praying to Walter, I need to let you know I am he. And the little boy said, no, sir, I'm praying to God. 
Walter went down to his office disturbed and he immediately got on the phone and called Milton. Milton came up and said, what can I do for you now? I've done everything for you. And Walter said to Milton, Milton, I want to be like God. The next day, Walter was back down in the mail room. That's what Jesus did. When Jesus was born, he not only came to the cradle, but when he was born, he came to the cross. They didn't make Jesus die on the cross. The Bible says he voluntarily laid down his life. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I voluntarily give it up. He didn't have to die. Oh, sure, he had to die if you and I were going to be saved. And if our sin was going to be atoned for, there had to be that perfect sacrifice that was made. But Jesus Christ didn't have to do it. He wasn't obligated to do it. He said, I voluntarily give my life. I offer it up. And so the Bible says he became obedient unto death. And not only death, but the worst kind of death. It says he, he went to the cross. He died on that Cruel, rugged cross. The worst kind of death known to man at the time. A torturous death. A criminal's death. Oh, people today, they make jewelry out of the cross. But in ancient times, they didn't do that. It was seen as a, a cruel instrument of death. In fact, to the Romans, to even speak of the cross was considered an obscenity. And that's why it took a while for the cross to become the symbol of Christianity. Because they would not even conceive of wearing an obscenity around your neck. Years ago, Dr. Jack Kevorkian, Dr. Death said, Hmm, had I been around in the first century, the time of Jesus, Jesus wouldn't have had to have died such an undignified death. Had he died in one of my clinics or in my van, he'd have died a more dignified death. Well, folks, the Bible says he didn't come to die a dignified death. He was rejected by men, a man, a man of sorrows. All we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. In fact, in Galatians 3 it says that the cross was, was a, the, the one who died on the cross was viewed as being accursed. And so he became that curse on the cross for you and me. He died that kind of death that you and I might have life. The humi humiliation of the Lord Jesus. This is why he came. Yes, he was a wonderful humanitarian example. And we're to try to walk in his footsteps in that regard. But that's not enough. Yes, he came to do miracles. 
and the crowds followed him because of his miracles. But that wasn't the chief reason he came. Yes, he taught in parables and he taught many wonderful things and the crowds were, were stunned at his teaching because he taught not as the scribes but as one having authority. Yes, he was a great teacher, but that wasn't his chief reason in coming. He came to die in your place, in my place, the just for the unjust, that in Him you and I might be made the righteousness of God. He came to do for us what we cannot do for one another and what we cannot do for ourselves. The Bible plainly says that if redemption could have come through a law, then God would have sent a law. But the law just points out to us how guilty we are. It's that mirror that exposes our sin like that. That mirror that you look at in the morning and you see that your hair needs combing. Or the ladies that they need makeup on. Or you need to brush your teeth. The, 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 the mirror can't make you get cleaned up. The, the mirror just points out to you what you need to do. And that's what the law does. The law just exposes our sin and our guilt before God. The law cannot save. A perfect sacrifice had to save. And that's what Jesus came to do. And that's why on the cross he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. All of the Old Testament was pointing towards Him. All of those blood sacrifices of the Old Testament were pointing to Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. That's why He came. And that's why He humbled Himself. The writer of Hebrews, in fact, says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Again, it was a shameful death, but he despised the shame and he went joyfully to the cross. Yes, in the garden he prayed, he sweated sweat drops of blood. But ultimately the writer of Hebrews says the joy, the, the overriding theme of the cross, he knew that it was the only way. And for the joy of people being able to be redeemed and be in God's presence one day, his family in heaven with him, he had to die. And so he died on the cross. The perfect Sin substitute. All the wrath of God zeroed in on him. All the wrath of God, the righteous, holy wrath of God against sin. God's judgment against sin was zeroed in on Christ that day. And he died in your place and my place. Humiliation. The fact that he came to earth from heaven, humiliation. The fact that he was a had he come as the most important king on the face of the earth, it still would have been a gigantic journey downward. But he didn't even come as an important king, but as a servant, humiliation. Not just a servant, but a bondservant. And he died, and not just the death, but the death of the cross, a criminal's death, a despised death. 
a death of shame, humiliation, because he loves us. The greatest gift the world has ever known because he loves us. God so loved the world that he gave. But the story doesn't end here. You see, thirdly, I want you to see the exaltation. Pick up reading with me again. In verse 9, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself, the Father exalted him. He has a name above every name. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's Emmanuel. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the author and finisher of our faith, the bright and morning star, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. His name is above all names. The apostles in Acts 4 said we cannot help but preach this name because there's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. The greatest name of all. Through his name there is salvation. Paul in Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. By his name we have peace with God. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By his name we have access into God's presence. Romans 5, 2. He's that prosago. That introducer, even on earth, a prosago is that middle, that, that, that mediator that introduces you to somebody, carries you into the presence of, of somebody important. He's, he's the mediator. There's one mediator between men and God, the man Christ Jesus. He's the prosago. He died in our place and he's the one who takes us to heaven in God's presence the greatest name oh in heaven there's great names great personalities favorite Bible characters Noah and Abraham and Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Peter and Paul and James and John there are great angels in heaven there's Gabriel who announced Jesus birth there's Michael the archangel but there's no greater name than the name of Jesus Christ Revelation 5, there's that one seated on his throne with the scroll in his hand. And the question is, who's worthy to take that scroll? And they search through heaven, through things above, through things on the earth, through things under the earth. That is, through all of heaven's personalities, through all people who have ever lived, through all people that have ever died. And nobody was discovered who was worthy. John weeps and then the, the angel says, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb having been slain, he's worthy. And he goes and takes the scroll from him, seated on the throne. And all of heaven breaks out into applause and song and worship. 
I want you to see this morning that it's only because of God's downward mobility in the incarnation was there salvation that was purchased and an inheritance in heaven waiting for you and me. Only because He came down can you and I go up. The Bible says even the creation now is groaning and longing for the day of, of the redemption of the children of God. Only then will all things be made new. Only then will there be no more death, no more crying, no more pain. Every wicked thing of this, of this fallen world is one day going to be gone. It's going to be erased. Paul says here in that day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There'll be those in heaven confess. Adam and Eve. We knew it. There he is. He's the one that those animal skins pointed forward to. He's our redemption. He's Lord. There'll be Noah. There he is. He's the ark of safety. And Abraham. Yes, that's him. He's the Lord. There he is. Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides for all of our needs like he provided for my needs and gave that ram in the thicket. There he is. There'll be Moses. Yes, there he is. He's the one. He's the water from the rock. He's the manna. He's the bread from heaven. There'll be Elijah there. Yeah, there he is. He's the chariot of fire come to take his people home. Isaiah. Yes, there he is. Emmanuel. God with us. The wonderful counselor, the prince of peace. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. There'll be Peter there. Yeah, there he is. He's Lord. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Every tongue confessing. That means even those who have lived their lives and rebelled against them and, and are lost and on their way to hell before they go to hell they too have to bow the knee and acknowledge there's Felix and he'll be there and he'll be saying to God I told Paul to go away for a more convenient time oh God if I could only have that time back and King Agrippa, I told Paul, he, he couldn't convince me. God, God, I'm convinced now. I believe. Please give me another chance. And Hitler, and Mussolini, and Pilate, who thought he could wash the blood of Christ off, or, off of his hands and, and be innocent of this man's blood. He'll be there and have to confess. Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, who said it's more advantageous for the nation that one man should die than that the whole nation should die. There'll be Richard Dawkins who continues even to this day to try to convince us that there is no God. And there'll even be the devil himself there. 
that'll have to bow the knee and confess. All of these that'll be there to confess before they hear the words, depart from me. I never knew you. The joy and the privilege you and I have today is that out of a loving heart, a heart of worship, a heart of adoration, a heart of exuberant praise, a heart of willingness that we can bow the knee and say, Yes, Jesus, your Lord, your Lord. I hope you've done that. I hope you've done that. You'll either do it now and receive your in, 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 eternal inheritance or you'll be like this other crowd who will still confess before they go away into outer darkness. Have you confessed Him as Lord? Bow before Him. Humbly ask Him to save you. As R.G. Lee once said, He became the Son of Man that we might become the children of God. He became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. He became exceedingly sorrowful that we might have joy unspeakable and full of glory. He became poor that we might become rich. He became a partaker of our human nature that we might become partakers of His divine nature. He became weary that we might have rest. He was born in a manger that we might live in a mansion. He was homeless that we might enjoy eternal habitations. He was condemned for us that we might be justified. He became a servant that we might become kings and priests with God. He bore our chastisement that we might have peace with God. He was wounded for our transgressions that we might be forgiven. He bore our stripes that we might be healed. He was striped or stripped rather that we might be clothed. He was cut off that we might be brought nigh. He was made a curse that we might receive a blessing. He was forsaken that we would never have to be forsaken. He died that we might live. He entered the realm of darkness that we might dwell forever in the kingdom of light. He was silent that we might speak. He was humble that we might be exalted. He was rejected that we might be accepted. He became like us that we might become like Him. Jesus Christ, the, the name that is above every name, the name that it is a joy and a privilege today to confess as King of kings and Lord of lords. Have you done that? If not, I would beg of you the urgency of the hour. In just a moment... If the Holy Spirit is moving on your heart and convicting you of your sin and, and you don't have peace in your heart, peace with God, but you want that peace and God's been convicting you and pressing upon your heart to, to bow the knee to Jesus and confess Him, do it today. Do it before you leave. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Don't delay. Nothing to gain by delaying and potentially everything to lose. Why would you put off that decision? 
You say, oh, preacher, I'm home free. I did that years ago. Great. Are you continuing to live under the Lordship of Christ? You see, we never lose our salvation, but oh boy, we can lose that closeness and fellowship. And maybe this morning you just, right there in your pew with your head bowed and eyes closed, you need to say, God, stir my heart again. Everything of the world has dimmed my view of the glory of God in Christ. And I want my heart warmed again. He can do it. Others of you, maybe you just want to bow your head in praise and thanksgiving to God that He did that great act of downward mobility. That one day you could experience the greatest ever upward mobility.